we're going to look at God's word. So turn to Colossians 3, Colossians chapter 3. It's way in the New Testament. It's about two-thirds in the New Testament. In the, it's way in the back of the Bible. It's a small book written by the Apostle Paul to a new church. And he's encouraging them to keep on growing spiritually. So as I read this, think about how he's encouraging, encouraging them to keep on growing spiritually. Follow along as I read God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanks- thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Spiritual growth is really vital. And in this cultural moment, we agree with that and sort of don't at the same time. It's kind of a hip thing to say you're open to spiritual things. Like if I took a poll in in Philly, uh, and I bet, I I actually know this is true in Oklahoma, hey, are you open like as a spiritual person? A lot of people would say, hey, I I have some concerns about organized religion, which are understandable. I have some concerns about organized religion, but I'd like to think of myself as open spiritually. I'd like to think of myself as a spiritual person that actually I'm, I'm, I'm into and open to spirituality. But if you listen closely to what's being said, uh, it's actually not that important. Often you could insert rainbow sprinkles into that sentence where you put spirituality and say the same sentence. And by rainbow sprinkles, I mean, you know, the little jimmies, they call them jimmies in Philly. I don't know why they call them jimmies, but someone made this clear to me recently. The, the little rainbow things you, you sprinkle on the, the cookies. You with me, Oklahoma? Yeah, yeah. You, it's like, it's not that complex, guy. We got it. The rainbow sprinkles. 
but look, you could put rainbow sprinkles into that same sentence. I'm not against rainbow sprinkles. As a matter of fact, I'd like to think of myself uh, as open to rainbow sprinkles. A couple times a year, it's a real treat. You know, around uh, Christmas and Easter, I always make a little room for some rainbow sprinkles. And you know, they're nice. I like to think of myself as being open to rainbow sprinkles. And there might be a time in my life when I will pursue more rainbow sprinkles. Don't think of me as anti-rainbow sprinkles. This is what I'm getting at. Because you can insert rainbow sprinkles into a sentence, the same thing you say about spiritual growth, what that reveals is, truly, you see it as optional and not vital. And in this passage here, what's in verse 3? With Christ, verse 4, Christ who is your life appears. This, this whole passage is built on this idea that spiritual growth is vital. Jesus is so precious, you can say he is my life. And often we think of spirituality, it's like extra vitamins. You know, if you have money in the bank, if you're, um, things are together with your job and relationally and sexually, and if you've already done your CrossFit or some other legit activity, it might be nice to shoehorn in some spiritual growth before brunch. And I'm not anti-brunch, okay? But I'm just pointing out, this is, we view this as an optional nice thing that we can maybe sprinkle a little on, but it's not vital. Where in this passage, there are things to put to death. This passage is built on what the gospel tells us, that heaven is real, hell is real, and real people are making decisions that affect their destiny. And how we live matters. And how we treat people matters. And what we do to our own soul matters. And yes, that's all part of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is important. There's this other phrase here that makes it really important. And he's just, he's throwing it out there just as a reminder. You might have tripped over this. Okay, you might have felt like this phrase I'm about to say might have been like a bar that you felt like you just hit your forehead on it. It's verse verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Probably some of us here are like, I I get it. You're like, how can this be helpful? Isn't this a toxic belief of Christianity? God's wrath is coming. And how is that helpful how is this? How am I supposed to use this to pursue spiritual growth? Why is that helpful? Here's, I want to ask you a question. I would ask you, are you bothered by certain things that are happening in the world? When uh, politicians lie, does that bother you? Or the, the sexual victimization that's become apparent by different men in power in society, who have used their position or power or popularity to assault, take advantage of, does that bother you? Uh, Does that get you fired up? You guys are taking a compassion offering. Probably some of us are fired up about the fact that certain people don't have clean water to drink 
And that's something that they're thinking about. That mom's thinking about how am I going to find clean water. And you're like, you know, this, that's nuts. That's crazy. Now, uh, I'm glad that you're fired up about that. Isn't that right to be fired up about that? Let me ask you this question. Would a good person, a person who sees some good, care more or less about those things? More, right? Uh, someone who's evil doesn't care. Charles Manson, who died uh, November 19th, said famously in, a, in an interview, he was asked, hey, do you care about the people that died because of you? You killed, and he said famously, care? What is care? What is care? He just laughed at it. But you, you would agree with you that like a good person would care more deeply Look, if there is a God, he's more good than you. And he sees he's infinitely more good than you or me. And he hates evil more than you. He cares more than you about what's broken and what's causing tears and death and pain in this world. And he's invested. He has, if God is, if God, is God, he has a unique right to be invested in his creation and to want to fix it. And it's right for you to get fired up. Is not, is not right for God to be fired up and to want to deal with what's causing tears and hell in this world. What do you expect him to do? What do you want God to do? Be silent about evil? But God comes out, he's against it, And he's going to deal with it. And he also sends Jesus to rescue us from our own evil. Because here's the the secret insecurity. You know, one of the reasons why we're uncomfortable about a God who brings wrath, which means like righteous anger. Anger that's like, no, that's, that does, that does, we deserve that. One of the reasons why we're nervous is we're like, what does that mean for me and my evil? You know, what does it mean for me, the ways I failed to love, the ways I haven't, uh, honored other people, the ways I haven't, I've demeaned, the ways I've hurt. And we tend sinfully to see ourselves as the standard, right? Hey, what I do is a foible, deserves a free pass, it's understandable. But people worse than me, however you would define that, they deserve, someone needs to deal with them. And God wakes us up with this truth, guess what, you're not the standard, God is. I'm not the standard. God is. And he's invested. He is. He is because he's holy and good and because he cares more than us. He's bringing wrath, but he sends Jesus to rescue us. And so we can grow spiritually. So it's good news. There is a God who's fired up, but there's also a God who loves. And at the heart of all reality is a savior with pierced hands for you and me. So that's why we can grow spiritually. And this passage is going to show us how. We're going to see the source of the spiritual growth, the process of the spiritual growth, and the place. Okay? Those are the three places we're going to go. The source, second, the process of spiritual growth, and the place. Where does this happen? First, the source of spiritual growth. Let me say what it's not. It's not technique. It's not just like a kind of a Jedi mind trick you do on yourself. It's not you on your own. It's not just in nature, in the world. It's not just you doing it on your own. 
What's the source? Well, if I went down to frontline kids and just shouted in the room, hey, kids, what do you think the source of spiritual growth is? Some kid is going to venture the number one Sunday school answer of all time and probably shout out what? Jesus? (laughs) Right. Okay? The source of spiritual growth is what God's done to rescue us in Christ. And this passage, and I'm I know this is tough. I'm dropping you in the middle of a letter when you're going to finish a letter. You were going to finish First John, but I'm dropping you in here. Here's what's going on here. Uh, the Apostle Paul is helping people see that their deepest identity is in Christ. Like, and by identity, I mean, what makes you you? Where do you get your worth? Who are you ultimately? And where do you get your worth? In ancient people, they are tempted to look, in a sense, outwardly through the window and find themselves in the faces of others. What does my community say? What do my people say? My clan? Well, you're a good citizen. You're a good son. You're a good daughter. You're a good this or that. Ancient people were tempted to define themselves, their deepest identity, in the faces of others. And... Modern people, what's the pendulum swing? We said, look, well, people can say the wrong thing about us, right? Some of those voices can be condemning. Maybe you had family voices in your life that were condemning. Then it's one of the reasons why the holidays are tough. And so in this modern cultural moment, we've said, look, the outside voices can be harmful, including religious voices. And so you know what? Let's not look out through the window to find ourselves in our deepest identity, We'll find it in ourselves and by looking in the mirror and finding out, finding who we are in our own face. And yet the gospel invites us a different direction. Don't look outward at the faces of others to find out, to find first who you are. Don't look within and just define it for yourself to find first who you are. Don't look outward. Don't look inward. Look upward. And find yourself in the face of God, the face of the living God. That's, that identity builds this passage. And I'm going to touch on that in a second, but I want, to, I want to kind of just explain what's wrong with finding your worth in yourself. Some of you are probably like, look, what's wrong with just, hey, I'm going to say, I'm going to myself remind myself that I'm a person of worth and value. I won't listen to the outside from any direction. I'll just define that for myself and speak that to myself. What's wrong with that approach? This could be a separate sermon, but I'll give you two things. One, it doesn't work ultimately in a relational world. We're born into a relationship in a relational world with God and other people. We experience community or not and that just defining ourselves, it doesn't really work. Like if you just say, I don't care what others think of me. I think I'm good and generous and I smell great. You know, I just define that for myself. Uh, a month ago, I was uh, flying from Chicago back to Philly and it was on Southwest. And I just totally forgot to check in. You know, Southwest, you have to check in and then you get to get on first. I was the last person in an absolutely full flight to check in. Totally snoozed on that. And so I'm headed for the back row middle seat. And I'm a large enough human being. I get it. And when people see me coming on the plane, they're saying to themselves, please no, 
not the seat by me. You know? Airplane seats now are made for Ewoks and hobbits and other little magical creatures. And it's hard. And so I, I get it. I wouldn't want to sit by me either. Um, and so I, there's these two guys in their 20s that are in the back row. And I can read what they're thinking on their faces. They're just like, this is disappointing for the next three hours. I am a little bit sad right now. And I tried to take the sting off it. Like, hey, is this like the bus? Is this like the school bus? Cool kids get to sit in the back. And like, that's not helping right now, guy. Um, So I sit down and we're there. And now if I thought of myself as a person who's easy to sit by on on a plane, I was just like, hey, guys, actually, I don't know if you knew this, but I really think of myself as someone who's easy to sit by on the plane. I'm kind of like a small, petite, cute millennial on the plane that you were hoping for, uh, a cute millennial girl that you were hoping that would work out, and instead you got a 240-pound, uh, 48-year-old lumberjack-looking guy here. Sorry about that. But just so you know, I think of myself inwardly as easy to sit by on the plane. They would say, rightfully, because we experience each other relationally, you might think of that as yourself. You might think of yourself that way, but that doesn't give us more elbow room right now, right? That doesn't change our experience of you. And that relational aspect, that's what's wrong with this. When we say, well, look, I don't care what others think. I am great. I have value and worth. We can be blind to how others experience us in the ways that we're cruel or selfish or impatient or unloving. It doesn't help that you, hey, this is how I, this is how I define me for me. Well, how are other people experiencing you? How are you in your, in your relationship with God, even if it's non-existent? What is God's experience of you in his world if God is God? You're not just on your own little planet. So it doesn't ultimately work relationally to define yourself. And here's the other thing. We need someone good to bless us. We need someone good to bless us. Tim Keller has pointed this out many different places. One of the places he he pointed this out is in this book, Making Sense of God. And it just sums up the biblical teaching. We need someone with worth and goodness who we admire to bless us. And they have to know you and they have to be good. They have to know you and to be good to give you an identity. So like if a, your postal worker, if your mailman thinks you're great, that's nice. But your mailman doesn't know you. Mailman doesn't know how you treat your family. Right? Doesn't know you intimately. If someone could know you really well, but if they're toxic, if Charles Manson thinks you're great, that doesn't, that's not going to bless you. It's not going to give you an identity and a sense of worth. He's bad. And what we have in the gospel, look, we have a God who knows us and who sees us and who loves us. You have a destiny. You're not an accident. We have a God who sees us. And what are the, what's the language of this passage? who gives us a new self, who knows us intimately. 
and who gives us, gives us worth. It's worth that it is received. And God, who is good, is able to do that. But God, the being whom we should admire, sees us and knows us and blesses us in grace. Now, uh, this, this explains Jesus' Jesus's kind of creepy reactions with interactions with people. I mean stuff like this. Jesus meets Peter and immediately renames him. That's a weird thing to do when you meet somebody. Hey, that's nice. You will be called Peter. Jesus meets um, Nathaniel and says something about him. And Nathaniel says, this is in John 1, how do you know me? Because Philip had gone and said, hey, you got to meet this Jesus guy. Nathaniel, come. you got to meet Jesus. And Jesus says something about Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What was happening under the fig tree? We don't know. <laughs> Philip did, though. I mean, Nathaniel did. Nathaniel's blown away. My Lord, my God. He's known. God knows, God sees, God, God blesses. And this blessing comes, this identity comes by being spiritually connected with Jesus. That's how these verses make sense. We have this spiritual connection with Jesus and an identity with him. If then you have been raised with Christ, well, how does it make sense that you were raised with Christ? Well, if you are spiritually reconnected with God through Christ. So what he does now counts for you. You died, according to this passage, verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your deepest self, look at that, verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears. The deepest you, the real, your real self, is known and experienced through Christ. It's an identity that's received. And this is the mission of Jesus. Now, we're going to get into the part of this passage which gives us stuff to do. Hey, put off these qualities and put on these qualities. It's, it's, it's clothing imagery. Put off this stuff, this hateful speech. You know, you, hey, you got up in the morning, you said you weren't going to do that, and all of a sudden, you're cursing people out on the way to work. You're like, put that off, put this on. We're going to get to that. But you need to know that the real you, this flows out of an identity received from Christ. My, um, I have a daughter who goes to a charter school, and this charter school is all about standardized testing. And so they hype the kids up. They're like, look, if you crush the standardized test, you get this T-shirt. And doesn't sound like much, but that fires them up. They're really into it. And so... My daughter's wearing this t-shirt that's the school slogan. It says, believe it, achieve it. Believe it, and you can achieve it, and you can do it. And I like to say that when she's wearing it. Believe it, achieve it, in a dad way. Kind of, I'm making fun of the school a little bit, I'll be honest. Uh, my point in bringing that up, Jesus gives us a different t-shirt. Okay, the t-shirt from Jesus would say, believe it, 
and receive it. Receive this new self. Receive this forgiveness before you've changed. Receive this grace. Receive this identity. Believe it, receive it. Believe it and know that you are forgiven. Believe it and know by grace you are holy and beloved, verse 12. And then he would give a headband. He'd give you a headband that would go along with the t-shirt that says, be who you really are. Be who you really are, which is your identity in Christ. And this brings us into the process of spiritual growth, which is, this is the karate kid part, the wax on, wax off part, the put off, put on part. Okay, so what's the process of spiritual growth? Okay, first is, remember the new you is the true you. That's your real self. You're letting go go of the old that's actually crucified with Christ. Jesus died for these sins. Jesus died for angry, blaming Steve. When we first got married, one of the things that became apparent is that I was a really good blamer. Could get out of anything. Oh, this is actually your fault. Don't you see that? Jesus died for that. And the new self, the new you, is the true you. And we're, we're then called to be who we really are, this identity received by faith through grace, and put off and put on. It does require effort. Look at the language here. Put to death sin, basically. Verse 5. There's things to put to death. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Verse 9, you have put off the old self. Look, you have done this definitively, so keep on swinging with both hands and fight your sin. Repent them, name them, own them, and put on the new humanity, the new self, the real you. Now, he lists two different kinds of sins. He lists sexual sins and he links sexual sins and coveting and idolatry. And then he lists sins of angry and hurtful speech. And the sexual sins and coveting, he says sexual sins, and he lists a bunch of different words. It's, it's any sexual activity outside covenantal marriage. And he lists that as coveting, it's taking or receiving what's not yours. And he says this is idolatry. And look, why is he saying this? Some of you would understandably say, look, is this like just anti-sex, more Bible stuff, anti-desire, anti-sex? How is this helpful? He's not anti-sex or anti-material, like your body is bad. This is the apostle. This is the same guy who counsels married couples to have a healthy sex life and don't hold out on each other. 1 Corinthians 7. I um, mentioned that recently, and a guy on guy in Philadelphia was like, "That became my life verse. I love that chapter, whatever that is. I'm really I'm going to study that, become a student of that. That is wonderful. Uh, it's not anti-sex, okay? Your body is good, desires are good. It's anti-idolatrous sex. When we take any gift, like money, or a job, or Uh, desire for comfort and food or the desire for sex and make it the meaning of life and say, I must have this no matter the implications for my own soul or how it affects other people. 
So he's not anti-sex. He's also not us, them. He's not like, uh, you're the holy people and I'm calling out all the bad people who do the sex stuff. He's not saying that. What's he saying? He's just like, this is what people struggled with in the ancient world and it's a new church. And he's like, hey, I know you guys are working through this stuff and trying to change. So yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, you need to apply the gospel to that. And he's like, and these two, you once walked when you were living in them. He's like, yeah, that's what you're struggling with. That's why I'm naming it. And that used to be you. And he was really open about his own story, okay? his own need of grace. He was a, the apostle who tried to destroy the church before he became a Christian. He saw himself as deeply in need of grace. So it's not us and them, and it's not anti-desire. He's not saying all those desires are bad. There's a whole book in the Bible about sexual desire and a celebration of sex, the Song of Solomon. But he is saying our desires can get bent and become destructive. Um, I mentioned this earlier in the sermon. One of the things that's been happening over the past about seven weeks, right, or a lot of different men in power have been called out in the entertainment industry, in the political world, all across the spectrum. We know this has happened in the church too. Men in power using the position to victimize others sexually. And um, one of the things that's happened in the church and on social media is that, that hashtag me too. Women acknowledging, I have been hurt. I have been wounded. And I don't need to be ashamed. I can say that this has happened to me too. And that the sci- I don't have to be silent in the face of this hurtful victimization. Um, first off, I want to just remind you, as I've sought to done in my own church, that the heart of God is grieved for you. And God hates, God hates sec- the sin of sexual victimization. God is against that. And we're called to be a community that weeps with those who weep. And a lot of people, uh, that's one of the things that happens with sexual sin is often you feel like things that are, are your fault that aren't your fault. And we need to be a community where we speak the truth of just, well, like we grieve that for you and the heart of God is for you. And men are called out in the Bible and punished. I'm going to do, our Advent series is on the mothers of Jesus, the women in Jesus' genealogy that Jesus is descended from. Three out of the five in Matthew 1, the most famous is Bathsheba. Uh, King David, basically Harvey Weinstein, Bathsheba. He said, that's someone else's wife. I'm the king in power. I will take her. And he is called out and punished and disciplined. And in that wreckage, God still brings the savior. In that wreckage, God still brings what we celebrated earlier. He was bringing light into a dark world. And I mentioned... I mention all that to speak this word of grace 
to those in this room who are working through that. And also, can we just take step? This is what's hard in this cultural moment. We've been told that the only, as a culture, the only thing we should do with our sexual desires is to say yes to them. Say yes to the desires that were then. Say yes. Doesn't it make sense, just the fruit in the world, that there are desires in us that we need to edit, fight, put off, that their sexual desires are good, but they can get bent and bring hell on your soul and others. And we, as the church, we need to bring that message and do it humbly by saying this is also an area in our own lives where we need grace and forgiveness and truth and light. This is why Jesus came, man. Because we are, we are both the wounded who've been wounded and we're also many of us perpetrators. In, in Put it this way, Jesus makes this the line. If you've looked at someone, if you've committed adultery in your head, you're a perpetrator. I'm not saying all perpetrators are the same. You know, there are lines that are crossed that are very significant. But in sin, we tend to want to take what is not ours. And Jesus says, according to his definition in Matthew, that can even be mentally And it doesn't lead to flourishing in life. Uh, It doesn't help you love, let's say, one one woman or man for the rest of your life. If you're a woman, it doesn't help you love some uh, cross-gender soulmate for the rest of your life by entertaining a fantasy life of pretend people. It doesn't. There are things to put to death. There are desires that need to die so we can put on the things that lead to life. I'll move us on to this last point. The put on, um, look at what he says. You're holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Um, Don't leave here today without acknowledging, ask the Holy Spirit to show you your true identity, who you really are, who you really are, who God says you are. Don't leave here today without asking the Spirit to show you what is it that God's telling you to put off and what do you need to put on. Put off abusive speech so your mouth can be filled with words that build others up. The love, the peace that we're called to. Put off And also put on, put on the good things, put off the things that lead to death and put on the things that lead to life. And you know where this happens? The place of spiritual growth. It's in community with God and others. We tend to think in the West that spiritual growth is a deeply personal thing, which it is. But we think of it as an individual thing, which it's not. It's a community thing. Okay? 
The recovery people know about this, right? The, the recovery movement, if it's drugs or alcohol or anything, we know we need to be in community to grow spiritually. And look at the, look at the verses here. Look at the one another's. Bearing with one another, right? Forgiving each other. There's a third one another. Teaching and admonishing one another in that last paragraph with all wisdom, singing psalms. The picture being painted is this worshiping community that's pursuing God peace, God's peace, bearing with one another. It's mul- multiple races and multiple classes. It's neither Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, verse 11. It's socioeconomically different in a one-anothering community teaching one another, admonishing one another. You know what admonishing is? Admonishing is saying, I love you. You need to stop doing that. It's a really hard thing to say. Hey, I love you. I care about you. You need to stop like thinking that way. I was in a, I'm in a men's group. Uh, just some guys in our church that get together every week. And... That's the hardest thing to say, but it's beginning to happen, bearing wonderful fruit. Hey, how you talk about your wife, we love you, we're your friend, but you complain about her, and for the sake of your soul in your marriage, and what, we just, you, what, dude, I love you, you need to fight those, you need to stop doing that. That's what one anothering is. That's what admonishing is. And that spiritual growth, it happens, see, in community with God and others. Uh, get in a band, and I'll end with this. The heart of Methodist spirituality, which came out of the first Great Awakening, we're talking the mid-1700s, a lot of people became Christians, both in Europe and in America. And the Wesley brothers were part of that. George Whitfield was uh, a pastor who preached the gospel. A lot of people came to faith and they started small groups and missional communities. They called them prayer societies, but the heart of it was the bands. Every small group had bands in it. And this is what a band was. It was three to five people who would be soul friends. It was three to five people who, are, who would say, hey, I'm, we're part of this larger missional community, but I'm really going to commit to you to pray for you and you can say to me here are the sins that I'm going to confess this week that I'm battling here's where I'm trying to what I'm trying to put off here's what I'm trying to put on here's what's happened since last week and I'm going to invite your feedback speak into it you can challenge me and three to five people who just do that for each other you know and if you're if you're trying to do spiritual growth solo and not experiencing that, you're missing out on a means of grace. Uh, Josh mentioned that he has become a, that there is a group of pastors that he texted. And that's where I was like, dude, I'd be happy to come just preach for you. Um, Dude, tap the brakes. That's totally fine. Just grieve with your team and your church and your staff. And 
I've, one of the things God's been doing in my own soul is just, rec- I've, over the past few years, I've recognized how deeply I need those kind of soul brothers. And I began this sermon by thanking you and just letting you know how I've been blessed by spiritual friendship uh, from Josh and from others. This is what God calls us into. Uh, this is one of the joys of being a Christian. We don't just get God. We get a new family.